It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Dr. James Mukey. James, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. How are you? Uh, good, thanks, Laban. Great to, to see you this morning. It's uh, lovely to be here. Really, really fantastic. I've just uh, come from a walk up in the Adelaide Hills, uh, which was fantastic. A great way to start the day. I was, I was up at the crack of dawn or before the crack of dawn, so I thought I'd go for a walk and, and uh, just had my poles and, and up, up to the top of the hill and it was still pitch black and looking out over the lights of Adelaide, it's a bit like LA at night time. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was a fantastic way to start the day. So I'm feeling pretty good this morning. Well, you're, 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 there's energy coursing through your veins and it's coming through the screen, which is, which is always a blessing. And I, I, the first thing I was going to ask you about, uh, Dr. James, was as an eye surgeon, was winning the Australian of the Year something you saw coming? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. In fact, I was not expecting them to give it to another doctor from South Australia. So you might remember Richard Harris won the award last year. Uh, he's actually a colleague of mine. We were in the same year at medical school. So I really didn't think they were going to give it to another doctor. So it was, it was a surprise. It was lovely to receive the award uh, in South Australia. And then going through to the Australia Day weekend uh, wasn't something I'd expected, but you have to prepare for it. So I really had to do a lot of thinking about how I was going to use the platform and what I was going to uh, uh, to talk about in my year as Australian of the Year, if I did happen to win it. But uh, it wasn't something I'd expected. Lovely surprise, though, and, and great accolade. I think for me, the really special thing about this is uh, the recognition for Site for All, the organisation which I co-founded back in 2008, which is doing incredible work. And we have an amazing team of, of volunteers and staff who are um, just uh, really making a difference in the world. So, so it's great to have that recognition uh, for uh, the organisation. Well, it's a, it's a real privilege and a real honour to have you on the show. And, you know, we're very grateful for that. And I, in doing some of my research on you, James, you've lived the, just the most fascinating life. Would you share some of your stories about Africa and being kidnapped by Rwandan rebels and that type of thing with us? <laughs> um, Ugandan rebels, actually. Yeah, no, there's... there's sorry, uh, sorry. I have, <laughs> I have I've, had a, I've had a great life, actually, and... Uh, you know, I want, I want to live forever, actually. So I'm hoping that one day I'll become a superhero who can live forever. <laughs> uh, it, would be, it would be absolutely brilliant. Yeah, no, so, um, oh, uh, winding right back to, to 1988, which was my intern year, uh, I uh, was getting a little frustrated and, and a little uh, disillusioned during my intern year. This was my first year of, of practicing real medicine and I was mainly just dealing with patients who had chronic diseases. Uh, 
usually self-inflicted, poor diet, smoking, things like that. And uh, I just felt I needed more. And I, I had uh, undertaken a medical elective at the end of my fifth year of medical school in Africa, in Kenya, actually. And I came across this little hospital in the mountains of central Kenya. And I thought one day I'd like to come back uh, and work as a doctor in that hospital. And so through my internship, I was really seriously considering it and wrote to the doctor and the director of the hospital. And he said, yeah, um, we'd love to have you. So uh, I say through my internship, so it was my first year of earning money, so that I could volunteer as a general doctor. And so I headed off uh, at the end of that year in, in early 89. But before I, before I started work, well, one thing I really wanted to do was go and visit the gorillas in Rwanda. And uh, Rwanda, it's to the southwest of Kenya, so it's a landlocked country, and, and I couldn't afford to fly, so I had to go by land. Uh, at the time, I, I didn't have a lot of money uh, to, to last me the entire year. So I headed across Kenya to Uganda and then across southern Uganda, and much of the country was actually in civil war at the time. So this was, uh, uh, and, and actually the journey uh, through Uganda itself was pretty interesting. But eventually I got to the southwest corner of the country and Idi Amin, who we all probably remember as this brutal dictator, he was trying to re-enter Uganda. So Uganda had deposed of his evil rule a few years before. And so he was trying to come back at that time when I landed uh, in southwest Uganda and he'd sent an advanced party of his own gang of, of rebel soldiers to really pave the way for his return. When I just happened to find myself in the very same village at the very same time that this uh, group of men decided to stop for the night. And I was actually with a, a colleague from New York that we'd met and decided to go on this journey together. He'd never left New York before. He'd seen gorillas in the mist the year before and, and was desperate to go and see the gorillas in Rwanda. So we, we teamed up and, and then we, happened to be in this village. And the moment we set foot in the village, uh, we, we were surrounded by uh, this group of rebels. They were a pretty frightening bunch. They were, they were drunk, uh, they were absolutely filthy, and they were very, very menacing. And so the moment we set foot in this village, uh, we were surrounded by these guys and they tore apart our backpacks. They were looking for weapons. Of course, we, were, we didn't have any weapons, but they did find our binoculars. We'd been sightseeing in the National Park the day before. And uh, so they accused us of, of being spies. And they actually said that they'd seen us spying on, on them from the hills. And so I made the uh, mistake of asking the guy who appeared to be the, the leader, you know, what's your name? And he said, Major Charles Dickens. <laughs> So it was this very, very menacing character. And anyway, they, they marched us off uh, at gunpoint. And this was just a tiny little uh, village, a little dusty village. And um, they locked us in this ramshackle hut at the edge of the village. And they said, well, we'll let you stay here, but only if you behave yourselves. And then they, they locked us in this hut and they left. And uh, <laughs> we were freaking out, absolutely freaking out. Mike, this New Yorker, as I said, he'd never left New York City before, but he was beside himself. Uh, you know, he hadn't signed up for capture by rebel soldiers. And anyway, we decided we had to get out of there. We, we didn't think that if we stayed in this place, we were going to last the night. So we broke out through the back of the hut and escaped into the, into the jungle behind the village. And uh, it kind of went from there. And, and the, uh, there's more to that story. I can keep on telling you the, the, the rest of it, but it, uh, it, it was a pretty, pretty... Uh, exciting moment. It makes a good story now, but at the time it was um, 
it was uh, severely disturbing. In fact, my whole year, uh, I, was, I was in Africa probably close to a year and a half, actually. I had a number of experiences which were uh, life-threatening, uh, which were, uh, you know, as I said, made fantastic stories, but at the time they were pretty, pretty interesting. I actually crossed an active civil war zone in Mozambique on an armed convoy. Uh, that was terrifying. Um, I contracted malaria twice, maybe dysentery once. Uh, the house where I was actually living at the hospital in Kenya, where I was working, was robbed five times. Uh, and each of the robberies was quite violent. In fact, the last robbery was uh, one of my colleagues, a Canadian doctor. And we we'd actually, it was a Saturday morning, and we'd swapped uh, uh, our on-call duty. And so he went down uh, to do... Sorry, I went down to do the um, the ward round that morning, and he stayed at the at the house. And when I got back to the house, he he uh, confronted me, and he had uh, he was holding this noose around his neck, and he had this wild, mad look on his eyes, saying, "What do you think this is? What do you think this is?" I said, "I don't know." Todd was his name. I don't know, Todd. Uh, he said, um, "I've just been hung. Uh, the house had been broken into. He'd he'd been hung. Of course, he wasn't killed, but he'd been hung by the neck. Uh, and I think the the guys were trying to get money out of him. And uh, he obviously gave them the money and whatever they wanted, and they left. But uh, he he literally left that same day um, and departed. And I moved down from the house to the medical students' quarters where I stayed for another week or two. This was the very last robbery, and. Um, uh, so five robberies, and the only thing I had left by the end of my year uh, was the dirty clothes on the bottom of the laundry basket after the last robbery. The only thing I had I had left, and uh, you know, I collected things all over the all over uh, through that year. And uh, yeah, so I, it was interesting. I um, I came back to Australia after that year, and I, I must I must have had a degree of post traumatic stress disorder, I reckon. I didn't think about it at the time. I don't even know if the, the term had been uh, described at the time, uh, but it, uh, there was hardly a day where I didn't wake up reliving one of those those pretty confronting moments that I'd experienced during that time. So it was a, it was an amazing, amazing trip. And uh, I think uh, resilience building and, uh, you know, great stories to, to draw on and um, to... Um, I think help, uh, I, I suppose, mould the person I am today. Wow. <laughs> I almost feel like doing the start of the podcasting and introducing you as Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's lots more. And I, I actually went to, uh, to Jerusalem with my, my wife, uh, uh, Lena, just after I finished my ophthalmology training. And, uh, you know, that was another year full of extraordinary experiences. My wife... We actually lived on, in East Jerusalem, so it was on the Arabic side. I worked at St. John's Hospital, which was predominantly for the Palestinian people. My wife's a commercial interior architect, and there, uh, there was no real, uh, I suppose, for her profession, there was no real work that seemed to be available for her on the Arabic side. So she actually got a job with an Israeli architectural firm. So we had kind of a foot in, in both camps, so to speak. Um, she worked for six months, and then one morning the bus that she used to take which she did take to work. She actually got off it and the bus subsequently blew up uh, just after she got off it. Oh, my God, Father. Uh, yeah, so it was coming back round and it was uh, the, the, the um, terrorist actually waited for another bus to come line up next to it and, and before he detonated the bomb. And so two buses were taken out of that explosion. I think something like 60-odd people were killed. But it was just... Uh, 
you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes after she got off it. And uh, so she subsequently retired uh, or resigned from that job. And, and then it actually did uh, find a job on the Palestinian side, working with a Palestinian architect who was redesigning, uh, I suppose, or refurbishing one of the biblical churches. So my wife went on and spent six months refurbishing one of the biblical churches in the old city of Jerusalem. So, I mean, you know, she had this amazing experience as well. And uh, so lots of fantastic adventures. I um, one, one of the things I was loving when I was in Jerusalem was, was going out to the occupied territories into the West Bank and the Gaza Strip every week to do, um, to do eye clinics in the, in the refugee camps. And one of the, the trips, we were coming back through Nablus, which is kind of a hot, hot, hotbed uh, of, of terrorist activity at that time. That was back in 95, I reckon. And it was about a month after one of the terrorists had been assassinated by the Israelis. And so they had this, um, I suppose it was a wake, let's say, and, and we were coming into the centre of Nablus in the hospital van and there was a huge crowd of people and before we knew it, we were surrounded by this crowd. And it was one of those typical scenes that you see on the news where they were burning uh, uh, Israeli flags and they were uh, effigies and you know, rubber tires and things like that. And, and here we were in the middle of you know, thousands of very angry people and they spotted the car. And the interesting thing about uh, living in that part of the world is that there are two different number plates. There's yellow number plates for Israelis and blue number plates for Palestinians. But Jerusalem... Um, had yellow number plates as well, whether you were from East or West Jerusalem. So if we were out in the occupied territories, we were often stoned because they saw the yellow number plates, thought we were uh, Israelis and would stone us anyway. So we, we, we came into this mass of people, they saw the yellow number plates and they were literally ready to, to rip uh, the car apart. And, and uh, I'd hate to think what, what might have happened to us, but the, the nurse and the driver, who are both Palestinian, quickly ran down the windows and they said, we're from the, from the eye hospital in Jerusalem, you know, everything's okay. And, and then it was like the, the waves parting for Moses, the, everyone just parted and allowed the hospital van to continue on our way. But, you know, another absolutely terrifying experience that, uh, you know, at the time, you know, I was in my early 30s and, and my African experience, I was in my mid-20s and, uh, uh, you know, you feel invincible and... Uh, you know, I wonder what uh, my uh, my wife must have thought. But we were just living this experience together, and and uh, and uh, somehow, you know, managed to get through the year unscathed. But yeah, that, that was just another of, of many tales of of adventure uh, from from that time. And um, yeah, I don't quite have the same uh, adventures these days that I had back then. Uh, you know, whenever <laughs> I have a chance. <laughs> If I, if I go on a, a teaching trip into Asia, for example, I always add on a, a little excursion on the side to try and keep that, that adventure happening. But that I, don't, I, don't, I think once you have children, you know, life takes on a whole different meaning and, and you, you certainly don't want to expose yourself to the sort of dangers that I exposed myself back then. But I think one of the da- most dangerous things that, that I still do to this day is just taking a local transport in, in, in poorer countries. And uh, that, that uh, I think, is probably by far the most dangerous thing that I ever did and, and ever still do. Well, I'm a big fan of roller coaster rides, James. And when I was in India, I reckon that was scarier than any roller coaster ride I've ever been on in my life. So I totally understand and empathize with where you're coming from on that one. My goodness, there's definitely a few books in, in that, I reckon, James. You've got to... You've got to put pen to paper, and these are some fascinating stories. So thank you for sharing those with us. 
And I, and I suppose the, the beautiful side effect of all of this stuff is that the field of work that you ended up in from a medical point of view, which I know I've certainly struggled to pronounce. So for, for the listeners, can you pronounce the field of surgery that you're involved with? Yes, ophthalmology. So it's O-P-H-T-H, ophthalmology. So it's a, it's a curious one that uh, often gets confused with optometrists and orthoptists and there's a whole whole bunch of eye care professionals. And But I'm uh, a medical doctor. I'm an eye surgeon, really. I, I often just call myself an eye surgeon because it's much easier to say than, than ophthalmology. And, and my first name is much easier than my second name, so I'm often <laughs> called Dr. James. Dr. James. <laughs> and it's pronounced Muki, by the way. James Muki, the ophthalmologist. How about that? Exactly. And so, the, the name means mosquito in German, and <laughs> I've had malaria, malaria twice, so it's a very fitting name, I think, for me. That's so great. Oh, I think that'll help people remember it now, James. I think that's, that's one of those things. You've got to have like that, that mnemonic uh, association. James Mosquito. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Australian of the year. So... <laughs> From a, the only other eye surgeon that most people would associate is, is uh, Fred Hollows. Were you inspired by him at any point in your life? I actually met Fred. In fact, I met Fred pretty much 30 years. So Australia, Fred was Australian of the Year uh, 30 years ago in 1990. Uh, and he was Australian of the Year for his pioneering work in eye surgery. And, and his focus was really cataract surgery because cataract is the leading cause of blindness in the world. And I did meet Fred after I'd passed my, um, my, what's called my primary exam to, to allow me to get into ophthalmology training. And I went and met Fred and said that uh, I was really interested in, in uh, uh, what he was doing and, and wanted to be a part of it one day. And uh, now he was very welcoming and, and very embracing. But as I continued with my ophthalmology training and then had that time in Jerusalem, I mentioned that was my year after my ophthalmology training. I then went on to, to study eye cancer in, in London at Moorfields Hospital, eventually coming wow. back to Adelaide in, in 1998. I mentioned before with, with my, uh, my uh, 18-month-old son. And as an eye cancer specialist, um, and actually, you know, a lot of people wouldn't realise this. I mean, I think the Fred Hollows Foundation has done a fantastic job, but it, it really the story they've been telling for so many years is the, is the cataract surgery story. But there are quite literally hundreds of eye diseases, many are blinding and some are disfiguring and, and deadly like eye cancer. So being an eye cancer specialist, I was fully aware of this. And yet most of these diseases, if not all of the diseases except for um, cataract surgery, were really being managed very poorly in poorer parts of the world. And I've had a number of experiences teaching eye cancer in, in a number of countries in Asia. And, and uh, the, um, it really drives home the fact that the education that they've had has not been the same education that I received here. And so really my ethos was to comprehensively train and sustainably train colleagues in low-income countries, we don't call them developing countries anymore, we call them low-income countries, so that they can deal with all of the blinding diseases that they come across, um, not just cataract blindness. So yeah. I want to elevate elevate their ability to deal with, with all the blinding diseases. So that was really my focus. And then in, in uh, 1998, when I came back, 
uh, soon after I, I did my first teaching trip to Myanmar, actually, and Myanmar at the time was, uh, was still under military rule, and that was a pretty confronting place to go. And I realised uh, during that that week um, how poor their knowledge of eye cancer was, and and uh, how uh, I realised that we really needed to to up their knowledge across all areas. And so I started to to uh, run a program in Myanmar, and and bringing colleagues from Australia to train and in each of the subspecialty areas of the profession. And really that went on to um, eventually evolve into, into Site for All in 2008. Wow, fantastic. And because the Site for All initiative, the foundation that you, you were set up and you've been involved with has affected a million people through your work. Is that, are those numbers still correct? Yeah, that's possibly even conservative, actually. So we've now trained colleagues in nine countries in Asia. We've also uh, have uh, projects in a couple of countries in Africa as well. So our um, ethos, as I mentioned, so so there are a number of organisations who fly in, fly out. So they they just go, they land, they do a few operations, and then they leave, leaving very little, if anything, behind. So our mode of operation is to teach a man to fish. So we actually uh, either bring colleagues to Australia to train in 12-month hands-on what we call fellowships, or we take teams of, of doctors from Australia to train our colleagues, again, over a year or two in their, in their own centres in their own countries. So we train in each of the subspecialty areas so that they then have those skills, the expertise and knowledge to continue to do the work that they've been trained on. And, and not only the training, we also ensure that they have the appropriate equipment. So there's no point in training, let's say, children's eye specialists here in Australia, sending them back without any of the equipment that they need to continue to, work, to do the work that they do. So we ensure they have the appropriate diagnostic equipment and surgical instruments. That's a really critical part. And we sadly see this all too often in low-income countries. We often see specialists who have been trained. Um, they may have been trained uh, for short-term uh, periods of observing in, in, a, in a higher-income country uh, and then sent back with a sort of lower-level training and no equipment pretty much a waste of time, really. Yeah. Or we see the opposite. We see equipment that's donated very generously to a centre, but it sits in the corner gathering dust uh, because no one knows how to use it. And so we see this time and time again in some of these countries. And so frustrating for me. So this is a critical part of what we do is, is to provide the training and the equipment and the training and the use of that equipment. So all of those things come together. And so then that has that sustainable impact, far-reaching impact, um, and one example of this, um, just to, to, to uh, briefly tell you, so our strategy is, is it like a three-pronged strategy. We have a research arm, an education arm, and an equipment and infrastructure arm. We also have a, a, an awareness raising arm as well. But if we look at, um, in 2007, one of the really, I suppose, instrumental uh, periods in my medical life was... Uh, a childhood blindness study I was, I was involved in in 2007 in Myanmar again. And that was an extraordinary experience. We visited seven countries, sorry, seven schools for the blind over a two-week period in Myanmar, um, basically determining the causes of blindness amongst the children in all of those schools. And we found that nearly half of the kids had blindness that could have been prevented or treated. So that in itself was pretty confronting. Wow. The thing that was was really, really confronting was uh, the leading cause of blindness that we found, which was measles. Um, I suspect many people wouldn't know that measles was a blinding condition, and, and it certainly is. And this is uh, 
in children who have not been vaccinated. So this is a, a real argument for the, uh, the vaccination um, and herd immunity. When you don't have a herd immunity and to go to a school for the blind and quite literally be surrounded by a sea of children who are blind from measles. And measles is a terribly disfiguring uh, blinding disease. And these children uh, still can recall images of children who, who one eye is quite literally popped and is shriveled up as a scarred um, inside the, the eye socket and the other eye is, is grossly uh, enlarged and distorted um, and, and scarred in that, in that way. And so, you know, these poor kids who must have been through the most horrendous pain are now uh, needlessly blind, um, cost less than a dollar to blindness in a, in a child uh, and permanently blind. There's no coming back from it. So this was such a powerful experience. We also found that measles was a leading cause of blindness in the studies that we undertook in Cambodia in 2008 and Laos in 2013. So that really inspired me to, um, to train children's eye specialists um, for each of these three countries. In fact, we've trained children's eye specialists now from nine countries in Asia. But once we had the results of that study in Myanmar, I went and met with the health minister and I said, have a look at the results here. We need to train a children's eye specialist, what we call a paediatric ophthalmologist for, for your country. And, and fortunately, with his blessing, uh, we were able to bring a young uh, ophthalmologist from Myanmar to spend a year with myself and my colleagues at Women's and Children's Hospital. And he returned home at the end of 2010 as the very first fierce country. And wow. we set him up in the country's first children's eye unit with all the appropriate equipment. And so he's been back uh, for 10 years now. And in fact, I was in Myanmar, finishing off a documentary that I'm filming about his incredible work, <clears throat> which I hope we'll be able to release a little later in the year. Um, he is now providing treatments to close to 30,000 kids every year, just him and his small group of trainees that he's training. And that, that is just nothing short of astonishing. But, but what he's also doing is training his own colleagues. So this is where the sustainability, which is the hallmark yeah. of the work that we do, is it really comes to play. So in 2015, he finished training the second paediatric ophthalmologist for the country, and he now trains at least two every year. And so it's, a, you know, it's just a fantastic example of sustainability and, and that teach a man to fish and uh, strategy that we have. And that's why, you know, if you multiply 30,000 kids every year, but actually when you're treating a kid, you know, uh, as a parent, if your child is in pain, whatever that pain might be, even if it's an eyelash uh, scratching their cornea, you know, you feel the pain. And so mm. 30,000 kids are impacting on probably 60,000 parents. And so, you know, they're in itself, the training of one person is impacting on, on 90,000 people. And, um, you know, childhood blindness is the second leading cause of blindness in the world when you look at the number of years a person has to live with their blindness. So it also has a significant impact on, on the economy of a country. It's actually... Uh, been calculated that for every dollar spent on fighting blindness, four dollars is actually returned to the community. So, not only are we fighting blindness, we're also fighting poverty. So, it's a it's a pretty satisfying and very rewarding um, thing to be involved in. Stuff Australian of the Year. You should be on the cover of Time Magazine. Get that Greta Thunberg off there and get Dr. <laughs> James Muki on there, mate. This is fantastic. No, no, no. So, what, what can we do? What can we do to help? exacerbate or help get this whole momentum shift going as an audience? It, it would be fantastic. I mean, I, I, I want people to, to learn about what we do and 
you've heard a story of, of the powerful impact what we do and I can tell you you know a hundred stories like that because we have quite literally trained nearly a hundred specialists from across Asia over the last few years um, and that's just one element of what we do actually and, and uh, so um, obviously it's not so cheap to train an eye specialist and to equip an eye specialist. So fundraising is really important. But we also have we have this what we call reverse fellowship program where we take um, training to our colleagues. Because so there's a number of countries where we can't actually bring doctors to Australia to train because of the language barrier. They can't register as doctors here. So we take the training to our colleagues. And so we have a whole uh, army of volunteer specialists. So uh, we call them our visionaries, not just ophthalmologists like myself, but optometrists, orthoptists, um, eye care nurses, et cetera, et cetera, scientists, anaesthetists. So, um, you know, every year, well, this is not a good year for us um, because there's no travel at the moment, but but in a good year, we we provide up to 10,000 voluntary hours of expertise. And that, that in itself is extraordinary. So we only have a small staff team. Uh, in, in the office we have, uh, in Adelaide, we have uh, three three staff, and we've recently just employed two more. So we now have five, and I think they make up something like three full-time equivalents. So it's actually a really small staff team. And so they harness the goodwill and expertise of all of these specialists from across the country and, and actually internationally. Now we have uh, drawn specialist expertise from, from New Zealand and, and the UK and, and a number of other countries. So it's just brilliant. And, um, and uh, so that, that voluntary expertise really reduces our overheads down to less than 10%, which is fantastic. And um, so we still need to run the machine. And so fundraising is important. And we have a number of fundraising mechanisms. I mean, we'd be delighted for the audience if they if they like what they hear um, to, to, to donate to the work that we're doing, which, uh, you know, we often hear the old adage of, of um, uh, charity starts at home. And certainly this year with the bushfires and now the viral pandemic, a lot of the uh, charitable organisations have been severely impacted and, and rightly so that, of course, you know, we need to to um, help the people of Australia who have been through a pretty tough time recently. But I also like to consider the Asia-Pacific as, as part of our home now. You know, Asia-Pacific is critical to our future, critical to our economic future and I think our, our long-term survival. Um, and so... I think as a charitable organisation, setting up the foundations of goodwill in, in many of these countries paves the way then for for-profit organisations to do business. And, and I know from the over 20 years of our work in Myanmar and the goodwill that we've created has, has been far-reaching and also, you know, allowing people to not have a lifetime of poverty then allows them to engage economically in their community, in their country. So uh, this is a really important thing for, for people to be aware of that, that that this region of the world where we are situated is very important to uh, to Australia's future. So um, um, fundraising, we would love, uh, we have a what we call our Vision 1000 initiative, which is an annual giving program which people can subscribe to. And at a certain level, they can actually come on a, a trip with one of our consultants to Asia to, to, um, to watch us in action. And I took a, a group of donors to Myanmar earlier this year and we had the most extraordinary experience. So, wow. you know, a, a, true, a true money can't buy experience. We have a number of events um, every year and the quest programs and so forth. But but we would love people to to um, subscribe to our newsletter on on, uh, on our website and sign up to our Facebook, Instagram, YouTube pages, uh, LinkedIn. Yeah, so we'd love people to follow the site for a journey because it really is quite special. What is the website, James? 
www.siteforall, so F-O-R, not, uh, not number four, um, siteforall.org. Beautiful. Okay. And that'll all be available in the description for the YouTube and um, for the podcast series as well. So the other thing I'd love to discuss with you, if you've got time, James, is the sugar tax and your involvement mm-hmm. in that. This is something that I'm a huge fan of, in case you're wondering. Are you able to share with us what's going on in that world? Yeah, sure. So when I won the award and uh, made my speech on Australia Day weekend, uh, the press in the, the few days afterwards, it was all about Dr. Buki calls for a sugar tax. But a sugar tax was just one of a number of things that I was putting on the table, really. And I, leading up to the award, I mentioned before that I was really thinking quite deeply about how I was going to use the platform to, to, to tell the story and to, to um, deliver some powerful messages. And I came up with a concept that I called the five A's of sugar toxicity. So the five A's are addiction, uh, the fact that sugar is actually highly addictive. It's been shown neuroscientifically to be as addictive as nicotine. Second A is alleviation. We often use sugar to alleviate stress or to make us feel better when we're down. Mm-hmm. The third A is accessibility. We are bombarded with sugar pretty much everywhere we go in our daily lives. Fourth A is addition. Something like 75% of our food and drinks have added sugar. Fifth A is advertising. You know, we have this lure and often predatory marketing in the advertising world for sugary products. Uh, and I'm sure people know exactly what I mean. You mm-hmm. know? So, so these five A's of sugar toxicity are really driving this epidemic of tooth decay, um, obesity, and type 2 diabetes. And if we look at just type 2 diabetes alone, I mean, sugar is the leading cause of tooth decay. Uh, If we look at type 2 diabetes, something like 1.7 million Australians have that disease. So it's approaching 10%. But there's actually something like 2 million people who have pre-diabetes, who in the next 5 to 10 years highly likely to go on to develop diabetes. So this is a a disease that was virtually non-existent back in the 60s. These days, we see about 250 new cases of type 2 diabetes every single day. During the three months, the last three months of the the pandemic, there was something like uh, 104 deaths, you know, that's and that's tragic. Um, But at the same time, there was over 5,000 deaths from type 2 diabetes. So this is a disease that's grown fourfold in the last 40 years since the American Dietary Guidelines were released recommending that we should lower our fat and increase our carbs. And this has driven this uh, just terrible situation that we've now found ourselves in. So the dietary advice that we've been given for the last 40 years has been wrong. And so this is a a really important part. In fact, I'm I'm meeting with the NNH and MRC uh, this afternoon, uh, later this afternoon, to talk about the dietary guidelines and to look at a strategy to, to change the advice that we've been given, which I believe is wrong, it's flawed. Um, And so that's one thing. And, And for me, so there's, way of dealing with this and the way of dealing with it is is looking at each of the five a's of sugar toxicity in turn so there's two overarching things there's an awareness and there's an accountability so an awareness so there's a personal awareness that sugar is addictive and that we're using it to alleviate stress i didn't realize until really the last few months either of these things and i'm a doctor uh, and so i can't imagine that the everyday man on the street would be aware of this So that's two things. So the other three A's 
all about accountability, accountability of business, industry and government. And if we look at each of those uh, in turn, um, and I can give you a number of examples. So, for example, the accessibility A, you know that you can't check out of virtually any supermarket these days without being uh, enticed by um, soft drinks and confectionery, often heavily discounted. In fact, I think something like 90% of foodstuffs at checkout counters are unhealthy and 30% of those are on sale in any one week in the major supermarket chain. So mandating the removal of sugary products from checkout counters, I think is critical because for, you know, for, for there are levels of, of addiction. There's a, what we call a physical dependency. And uh, I, I don't believe I was heavily addicted to sugary products, but certainly I had a physical dependency to, to, to sugary products. And ice cream is my favorite thing. But there are many people who have a deep addiction to sugar and, and sugary products. And with any addiction, one of the critical things is to protect the environment of the addicted person to reduce environmental cues to addiction mm -hmm. so if you have an addiction and there you are at checkout counter and there are half price chocolates and soft drinks calling out to you it's pretty hard to resist so i think that's just one of a number of strategies to reduce that accessibility of of sugary products um, the fourth phase addition i think that um uh well, certainly our food products the nutritional labels don't tell us how much added sugar is in the product. Um, we do have a health star rating system, which is that's flawed. wrong. <laughs> yeah, future grade four stars. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, that, there's, oh, a, there's an interesting back backstory to that. Orange juice gets five stars, so a glass of orange juice has almost as much sugar as a glass of cola. So it's clearly flawed. It's flawed for that reason because the algorithm is wrong, um, but it's also flawed because it's voluntary. So something like thirty percent of businesses use it. And, you know, if you're a manufacturer, are you really going to put a, a one-star label on something that you're trying to sell? Probably not. So, again, this is something that probably needs to be mandated. And the other A is uh, advertising. So, I mean, one of the obvious things is to stop advertising sugary products when our kids are watching TV. But if we look at um, the sugar tax situation, which comes under the addition, really, so... so um, this is obviously quite controversial, but has been shown in a number of countries to actually work. It reduces purchase and reduces consumption. And so let's say 20% uh, tax on sugary drinks uh, in Australia would give us something like $600 plus million, which could be then put back into health awareness initiatives to raise awareness about the things that I'm talk talking about. Also, the, the serious complications of type 2 diabetes. And it could also be used to reduce health inequalities uh, in our society. And there are significant health inequalities that, that we do see. So uh, a tax has been shown to work uh, in countries. It's not resulted in loss of jobs. Um, and there are a number of other sort of positive arguments for why it would be very useful. It would also save uh, about $2 billion every year in the treatment of type type two diabetes, um, that's above and beyond the um, the uh, um, dental caries as well. So, so type two diabetes is costing our health system probably around the order of twenty billion dollars every single year, which is phenomenal, and it's growing. And that's 
the, the treatment of the disease, its complications, and also lost productivity in the workforce. So yeah. it's just something I think that we really need to get on top of at the moment. And so you can see it's a, a broad strategy, which I'm, I, I presented last week to a parliamentary group who are all on board, and I'm hoping to present um, a, a very powerful group of people who, who um, are able to uh, communicate the latest evidence um, to the health minister to try and turn this around, turn this epidemic around in Australia. Well, I, I wish you nothing but luck, James. The, the of all of my vices, the drinking, the gambling, the drug use, the philandering, and whatever else is in there, sugar was by far the hardest of all of them. And it's something that I still struggle with on occasion, particularly when I have an emotional uh, eating experience, which is that escapism, the the altering your mood side of things. And I live downstairs, I live in an apartment in Melbourne and downstairs is a, a Woolworths and it's open pretty much 24-7 and it's very easy to go down and get a tub of ice cream when you're having a bad day. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And they need That's a my weakness. <laughs> uh, you look like a connoisseur kind of guy. How did you know? <laughs> Cafe Grande. <laughs> So I think they should tax the shit out of it, if you excuse the language, um, and make it harder. And and because what people don't realise is that we will bankrupt this country eventually if we don't do something about it, and then we're all cooked. Absolutely. In fact, you know, there's there's uh, often the argument that a tax on, on sugary drinks, um, for example, which has been shown to work, is a tax on the poor. But it's actually been modelled that it would cost every year, tax would cost a uh, poorer household something like $35 uh, extra a year, which is not a lot. Um, the wealthiest households is only an extra $4. So it's not a huge uh, tax. But what it will do, I mean, the cost to someone who has type 2 diabetes, the cost of their life, I mean, the expense is one thing, but the devastation of their life. And I, I have a, a, a patient, um, and he actually came onto the stage when I won the award. His name's Neil Hansel, and he's coming along on this journey with me this year. He, he's blind in both eyes. In March this year, he had his ninth amputation for gangrene in his leg due to type 2 diabetes. Jesus. He's also had a heart attack. Um, and he drank four litres of soft drink a day from the age of 16 through to when he uh, was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes at the age of 26. And, and people might say, well, oh, I'm never going to drink four litres of soft drink a day. I'm not going to get type 2 diabetes. However, just one can of soft drink a day, three year, will uh, result in, an, on average, a weight gain of around about seven kilograms. And that puts you into the 90% increased risk of getting type 2 diabetes. So, you know, people have to be aware that uh, it is really, really dangerous. And it's not genetic. It's the food. It's the diet. <laughs> well, it's, um, th there probably is a genetic component, and, but there's also uh, there's another maternal component. So when, when a mother is pregnant, glucose can actually cross into the fetus. Insulin can't cross into the fetus. So it can actually, it can actually result in metabolic changes in the child that predisposes to uh, type 2 diabetes. And we're now actually seeing children. We're actually seeing children in Australia as young as seven years old with type 2 diabetes. This was something that was called maturity onset diabetes some years ago. Uh, and, and there's even a child in the United States 
the age of three who developed type 2 diabetes had a diet which was full of sugary drinks. So this is a really frightening thing uh, we should not be seeing in this society. Aboriginal people um, also are terribly um, affected by it. There's been something like an 80-fold increase in type 2 diabetes in Aboriginal people in the last 30 to 40 years. So this is, this is also impacting on poorer socioeconomic areas of our country. So some of the poorest areas, such as Greater Western Sydney, half of adults have either type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes. Unbelievable, Sorry, isn't right. it? Uh, unbelievable. So, uh, you know, awareness of all these things is critical. And also, you know, you often hear this argument, well, it's about choice. They choose to, to do that. Well, actually, if you're addicted to something, uh, choice uh, really goes out the window, doesn't it? Because when you have an, addi uh, an addiction to a substance, um, it's it's very hard to to kick that uh, that addiction, and so choice is not really um, in play here. Agreed. I heard that it might have been as addictive as well six six to seven times more addictive than cocaine. I don't know how accurate that number is. Does that sound about right? I've heard something similar. Certainly, the neuroscience uh, that I've seen is as addictive as nicotine, uh, and yeah. I've. Uh, when I at the beginning of the year, I actually um, went into a sugar detox, and it's not fun. I and mean, for me, it was um, it was not doing the full detox from everything uh, that has sugar in it because that's pretty hard to do. But for me, it was just giving up ice cream, my favourite thing, chocolate, uh, and, and biscuits, and candies, and soft drinks, fruit juices, things like that, cake, and um, even day one of that, I was getting uh, sugar detox symptoms. So they're basically a sugar withdrawal symptom. And it's quite a confronting thing to experience. I mean, you, you suddenly just go into this, into, into almost into reverse, certainly down into first gear. You know, mm -hmm. The brain's not ticking, you, you're irritable, you've got clouded thoughts, you have a headache, um, and the cravings are just so full on. And, and for me, that lasted about three days. And then after the third day, Panadol certainly helped, um, but after the third day of, of battling with this, I was then able to, you know, to get on with life and, and get on with life without all of those heavily sugared products. And, and now, you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of being evangelistic about this because I, I still would like to enjoy uh, a dessert if I go out for dinner or I'd like to enjoy a, a, a mint chocolate frog every now and then. Um, so, um, but I can do that, and, and, and if I do it like that, then I don't get reeled back into that, that physical dependency or that even addiction. Wow. Well, this is, I mean, this is something that, I, it's, like I said to you, very close to my heart, and, and uh, we can talk about it all day. But I, you've got a lot on your plate, Dr. James, and I'm going to wrap this up unless you've got anything else that you'd like to, to finish on. But it's siteforall.org is the website you can get involved in, whether that be donating money or helping uh, create awareness, because what we sort out in our own backyards will only be paid for and come back to us many, many times over. And uh, you're doing some wonderful, wonderful work. One thing that I'm using this platform as well, being an eye surgeon, uh, there are now something like 100,000 or more Australians who have sight-threatening eye disease due to diabetes of all sorts. And more than half of those 100,000 people are not having their regular eye checks. And the regular eye checks are the critical thing in saving sight. So 98% of the loss of vision and blindness due to diabetes is preventable or treatable. So more than half of Australians are putting their eyesight at risk. Sorry, more than half of Australians with diabetes, so half of that 1.7 million people, are putting their eyesight at risk by not having their eye checked. So please have your eyes checked. Uh, it's really important. Um, so that, that's one 
thing I'd like to share with people. The other thing I think that's that's really important and um, in in reversing our metabolic dysfunction, and there there are studies and studies from America which show that something like eighty five percent of Americans have metabolic dysfunction due to their poor diet. And it's probably quite similar here, but we can actually reverse some of those metabolic dysfunctions by engaging a, a period of time-restricted eating or what we call fasting, um, of course. Um, and I do a 16-8 fast, so after dinner through till lunch the next day, I, I don't eat anything. And uh, yeah, for a week or so, it was, you know, you, you, were, you were feeling pretty hungry, but you then get into that mode and, and it's quite, it's quite, um, acceptable and it's amazing just by giving up my sugary uh, treats and going doing that 16-8 fast every day uh, or five days a week uh, the weekend I might have a bit of breakfast uh, I, I dropped something like 10 kilograms in, in, in two months I didn't wow. wasn't trying to lose weight but it's amazing how it just dropped off me and, and after we started re-emerging into the world after the um, the lockdown everyone was saying my goodness you know you've lost so much weight it's, I can even see myself that I've lost weight and, and I've never ever you scales they just just dropped off me quite extraordinary so um but i think if people have diabetes i think this is a diabetes we know can be reversed by a low carb diet there's mm-hmm. evidence out there to say that um and so i think it's important particularly if you're on medicines to, to discuss this with your your treating physician or doctor you can't just just go into a, a fasting situation uh, if you're on medications but when we fast um insulin level immediately drops and it's a high insulin level, which is a big driver of weight gain and some of the complications of type 2 diabetes. So insulin level drops, but you also get a rise in adrenaline and growth hormone, and this is really critical for, for weight loss and reversing type 2 diabetes. And the other thing, which I think is important, and you being a carnivore, I see there on your label behind you, you're a carnivore. Um, and there's another study <laughs> that was recently published in the American, one of the American cardiology journals that natural saturated fats in our diet have never been shown to cause cardiovascular disease. This is something critical. We've been conned into believing this for so many years. <laughs> exactly. And um, this has never been shown to cause cardiovascular disease. And, and so red meat, um, eggs, full-fat dairy, uh, even dark, cho- yeah. dark chocolate butter. Exactly. So I think people should be able to go forward and actually enjoy these things, but give up the sugary products, give up the highly processed uh, foods, give up the, the, uh, the refined carbohydrates, uh, um, you know, the foodstuffs made from white flour, white potatoes, white rice. You know, they're all big drivers of our, uh, our metabolic dysfunction. Oh, James, I could just hug you. <laughs> <laughs> I love this stuff. I love this stuff. And, and stay tuned for the Tim Noakes uh, interview which will come out uh, probably in the next month of you this, from this particular date where we'll go into some of this this type 2 diabetes and the metabolic syndrome that's affecting that we can expand upon that you've so beautifully brought to light uh, James so thank you so much for that. Ladies and gentlemen the Australian of the Year Dr James Mukey. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks 
that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.